Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Mandy Burrows about food allergies and their influence on ear health. Mandy is a fellow of the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists in Veterinary Dermatology and a registered specialist in veterinary dermatology as well as an associate professor in small animal medicine at Murdoch University. She is a consultant in veterinary dermatology and has two dermatology practices in Perth, Western Australia that provide secondary and tertiary referral advice for skin, ear and allergy problems in dogs, cats and horses. She lectures in dermatology at Murdoch University Veterinary Hospital and at Massey University in New Zealand. Mandy has extensive experience with clinical dermatology in companion animals and she enjoys teaching dermatology to veterinary undergraduate and postgraduate students. Hello Mandy, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal Podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you Sarah and thank you so much for asking me to be part of this exciting initiative. I'm really privileged to be here. Oh well we're very privileged and honoured to have you. Um, You're absolutely one of Australia and the world's most um, respected and well-known dermatologists so we feel very privileged that you've given up some of your um, busy schedule to be with us so thank you. Well it's very nice of you. I think I should have you write my biography. (laughs) Happy to embellish it for you. (laughs) Mandy, so we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic today, which is um, a a kind of a a hybrid topic, I guess, of of food allergies and how that impacts ear health. But before we get into it, I was just wondering if you're able to share your background with us and what sort of inspired you to be a vet and how you actually ended up as a dermatologist. Oh, well, that is quite an interesting story. I think it's almost by default. My dad, my... um really uh, gorgeous dad was a doctor, a human doctor, and uh, as a young teenager, I was hell-bent on, you know, not doing what my father wanted me to do, and he was really keen for me to follow him, his footsteps in human medicine, and although I was interested in disease and certainly interested in in uh, the medical field, I think I chose veterinary science almost by default. I always... <laughs> You know, loved animals, but yeah. I didn't really think that um, I would be a veterinarian. So I went into veterinary science really as a way of um, disputing what my father had um, <laughs> wanted for me. And then really spent most of my veterinary school undergraduate career um, attending sort of some of my university classes and having a great time. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, and then when I got out into the world of veterinary science, I really um, did enjoy being in practice, but I liked the challenge of uh, skin disease in Mm. general practice. And I came back into the university system actually as a pathology intern uh, and a small animal medicine resident. Yeah, and that lent itself to an interest in histopathology. And then from there I did a residency with a very important uh, dermatologist and a man who's been really critical in the career development and in the evolution of veterinary dermatology in Australia, and that's Ken Mason. Mm. And he has a large practice and referral practice and an industry contribution through derm care in Queensland and he's still working and he's still active in the uh, arena of veterinary dermatology and he trained me in my residency program and I also spent some time training in the US as well. So I've had a very um, privileged career in Mm. some ways in that I've been mentored by some Some very important people. Yeah, yeah. very valuable people. 
Yeah, yeah, so that's how it kind of happened. And you're in Perth um, and you're one of the owners of the Animal Dermatology Group. So can you tell us a bit about how that was established and um, what the group, um, you know, comprises? And I know that it's in not just in Australia as well. Yeah, so the Animal um, Dermatology Group, we sold. I sold some of my referral practice several years ago to the Animal Dermatology Group, who are a group based predominantly in the west coast of um, the United States of America and mm-hmm. it's a very large group of dermatologists who were originally set up by Dr. Craig Griffin and Dr. Wayne Rosencrantz and Dr. Rusty News, who you uh, yeah. already know and um, some of his colleagues uh, formed a, a conglomerate or a partnership whereby they currently have a, a large number of practices. I think it's nine uh, dermatology practices dotted through the western east coast of the USA and several satellite practices. And they become involved with um, not only uh, Perth, but also they have a practice in Auckland and a relationship with Massey University. Right. And so this is a way of them extending their reach, if you like, into other regions of the world. So this is the world's largest conglomerate of veterinary dermatologists. Okay. And its mission is to be you know, really active in training residents and teaching as well as making scientific contributions and also on an individual level the, the difference to the lives of the animals that you know we treat with skin disease so yeah. yeah it's been a very um mutually very beneficial and very rewarding relationship and how long has it been since you became an owner of that group yeah so about five years now okay. I'm trying to do the maths on it yeah, it's, yeah. I think about five years ago so okay. uh, and it's given us enormous potential to expand we now have a a residency training program where we now share the teaching of residents in you know two geographic regions. It's given us the opportunity to pollinate with um, or cross pollinate with ideas and research projects. It's also yeah. given us the capacity to um, have locum, locums come here from their group and work. So there's lots of um, mutual benefits yeah. or many mutual benefits in in being uh, in combining our strengths. Um, mm-hmm. And we're soon to take on a, a sort of a a third challenge here in Perth with being the first um, clinic, I think, globally to a dermatology clinic anyway, to set up an ear um, hospital that's quite independent of our skin and allergy work. So oh, wow. very timely. Yeah. I know. It's very exci- <laughs> we're very excited about our new venture. It's yeah. going to be in an entirely different location um, with a opportunity to both market and, and ourselves as ear specialists, which we, of course, we uh, always have known falls within the domain of uh, veterinary dermatologists, but isn't something that we perhaps emphasise uh, or um, uh, communicate as effectively as we would like to, to mm. both the public and to other veterinarians. So we're going to be able to do um, specialised laser and uh, bear testing, which is hearing testing, as yep. well as um, the endoscopy with uh, um, all the imaging, CT imaging um, wow. for dogs and cats with ear disease. So that's very exciting. So that's a very timely... I know. Um, I didn't even know that. <laughs> no, no, timing. I know you didn't. Because, um, in <laughs> fact, um, until uh, several weeks ago, um, we hadn't really finalised the negotiations for that. So we'll be moving into we'll be moving that project forward, um, you know, f- sort of very, very rapidly. And mm. we should be, uh, you know, we'll be able to see cases specifically for ear disease 
probably early next year, at the beginning of next year. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah very exciting. that really is pi- pioneering the movement, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. I haven't heard of any well, anything what, else what, <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what ADG, um, I think, is, is, yeah. is renowned for, and that's what the group yep. is um, always focused on, is, is ch- trying to set the standards for um, the you know for for patient care and 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 being quite clear about the um, our mission and our vision, which is to try and improve the lives of of you know basically of dogs and cats with skin mm-hmm. and ear disease. So mm-hmm. we're very excited. Yeah, it's really exciting. Oh, I'll be really excited to see that all all happen and uh, I'll be watching closely. Congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a really nice segue, I guess, into what I wanted to discuss with you today. Um, obviously, um, we, we we know that you're an expert in, in ears and um, this, this new venture that you're taking on is just so exciting that ears are becoming more recognised as a, um, you know, a, a whole sort of collection of conditions and um, issues on their own. So, but but I had been educated in my veterinary degree and certainly since then that there's quite a link between food sensitivities and the expression of ear disease, but I don't really know much more about um, just that sort of, um, you know, superficial level. So in your opinion and in your sort of experience in clinic, do you see a link between food sensitivities and food allergies um, and ear health? Is there is there sort of that um, definitive link there, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a really pertinent question. It is a good segue, isn't it, after just talking yeah. about the importance of um, identifying ear disease as an, as an independent entity to yeah. um, other areas of the skin being affected with dermatitis. And I think that what you're asking me is that, um, you know, is, is it important to appreciate the role of um, chronic otitis, at least, particularly chronic otitis as a presenting sign of you know, canine food allergy. And I think the answer to that is um, absolutely. And mm-hmm. if you go back and look at the evidence for that, that there are several published studies where there's a significant association between adverse food reactions and a TARDIS externa. Mm-hmm. And there are essentially about three times more dogs with a TARDIS in a food allergic canine population than in a non-affected population. So what we're saying is that if you have a food allergy, you know, you are three times more likely to have otitis than if you've got basically, you know, any other skin condition. Wow. And if you have a look, yeah, so, and if you have a look at the other published evidence in this area is that you can, um, depending on, you know, where, where the regional work's coming from and who's publishing it and which part of the world you're talking about, you can see um, otitis externa in anything up to 80% of cases of food allergy. Now, wow. if, you, if you go into, yeah, so in some populations it's lower um, and, the, and the figures range anywhere from between about 25 to, you know, 80%. So there's a, a big range. And I had, before we um, gathered together today, because I knew you wanted to talk about food allergy and ear disease, I had a look at the published work and, and really it, it ranges anywhere from between sort of 26, uh, 53, 55, 63, and 80% of cases. So everywhere you look for evidence that food allergies are a trigger for otitis externa, you find evidence to support that. And I Mm. think the thing that's very important to emphasize to veterinarians and to veterinary nursing staff and owners is that otitis externa can be the principal sign of food allergy 
in um, up to 20 to 25% of dogs. So mm-hmm. what that means is a dog that is coming into your clinic that has had one or more episodes of a TARDIS externa um, without any other evidence of skin disease. So no foot licking, no face rubbing, no rubbing or scratching the trunk or the belly, no mm-hmm. scooting. So no other clinical signs of allergic skin disease that approximately 25% of the dogs that have food allergy present like that. So mm. it's a quarter of our, roughly a quarter of our patient base. And I think that's the thing that sometimes fools new graduates working in the area, that if there's no other sign of allergy, then perhaps it's, um, you know, not going to be um, an allergic trigger. Yeah. But I, I personally believe that, it's one of the main clinical presentations for food allergy, and I think that while it doesn't necessarily mean the patient's not got atopic dermatitis, that if you have a dog that has recurrent ear disease, it's pertinent to really think carefully about whether um, food allergy could fit the picture. Yeah, right. And so would you say that an expression of, of chronic otitis externa as a symptom of food allergy is almost more common even than a GI ex- um, sign, like a vomiting or diarrhoea presentation of food allergy? Yeah, yeah. so if you look at the um, published work on gastrointestinal um, signs, so we're talking about um, intermittent vomiting, diarrhoea, signs of colitis, mm-hmm. um, then we're looking at Probably, once again, if you go back to the evidence-based um, publications on this area, anywhere from 50 to 60% of dogs will present with those clinical signs, but often the clinical signs are quite subtle. So things like flatulence and borborygmi are um, often uh, clinical signs that owners don't raise as a problem, and it's not until you actually ask an owner, you know, does this dog have a gurgly tummy, does this dog, you know, has flatulence, which is sometimes a slightly sensitive question to ask, you know, <laughs> yeah. consulting room. Um, and most people giggle when they answer that question. <laughs> Just like me. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, a lot of people perceive that those types of clinical signs are within the realms of normal physiology. But, but when we talk to owners about, you know, eruptation, belching, flatulence, those things are not normal and they're generally um, associated with some form of um, upset gastrointestinal tract. So if you ask specifically about those signs, you'll see in studies that report um, higher rates or higher percentages of involvement with gastrointestinal signs are generally associated with that specific type of questioning. So mm-hmm. in a roundabout way to try and answer your question, I think that it's reasonable to suggest that between 60 to 65% of dogs with confirmed food allergy will have some form of gastrointestinal disease and the rest of them don't. Well, I think the incidence and the published evidence would support that the incidence of otitis externa is is higher than that. And so, Mm. you know, in our population here in Perth, you know, 80%, um, we're the 80%, you know, where uh, out of 10 dogs in a room with food allergy, eight of them have got a history of having um, either one or more episodes of um, otitis externa. Wow, gosh. Well, I'm glad I asked the question. I didn't actually realise that the link was so strong Um, and definitely never knew when I was in practice. (laughs) Yeah, and I think what's so important is that, you know, I mean, a lot of clients get this sort of glazed look when you start talking about diet because the concept of an elimination diet is sometimes quite ominous. 
you yeah. know, and you know in practice you get some people who are highly compliant who mm-hmm. are very willing to change um, the diet. And then other times it's not as simple, you know, if you have a multi-pet household and you've got children in the home, yep. then those things aren't quite as straightforward. And often um, the, the, because we have no good test for food allergy apart from an elimination diet, it is something that clinicians often quite understandably find burdensome to support clients um, through that that diagnostic journey. Yeah, it can be very frustrating. And um, which was going to be my next question is what is your approach to diagnosing a food allergy? (laughs) We've got Mm. these lovely segues happening today. (laughs) So an elimination diet, obviously, but can you run us through exactly sort of practically what that might look like? Um, And we've mentioned one of the challenges being the, the sort of adherence to strictly following that, um, but what are some other challenges around diagnosing a food allergy? Yeah, so, I, uh, you know, I guess the, the issue with food allergy is that while we've looked for a long time, there are no in vitro tests so or in vivo tests that are really reliable for the diagnosis of food allergy in, in, in dogs or cats or horses. Mm-hmm. So in humans, there's some diagnostic rationale for prick testing. Um, there is some uh, positive evidence for lymphocyte lactogenesis testing in dogs, but it's an expensive methodology and it's not commercially available. There's some role for patch testing in selecting allergens for an elimination diet rather than being diagnostic. So there's a lot of um, work in the area trying to find a simple answer to, you know, could we be in practice? If you think about the challenges you had in practice, if you could have reached for a a saliva test or a, a snap test or a you know, or a blood test that would have helped you make a diagnosis of chicken or fish or, mm-hmm. or wheat allergy, then you would have elected it because it's a, a way of giving owners substantial information very quickly without having to do more burdensome diagnostic investigation. But yeah. the, the sad reality is that there's really all studies performed to date examining any of those or the potential usefulness of any of those diagnostic methodologies has been very disappointing. Yeah. So... The the issue being is at the moment um, elimination diets are the um, considered to be the most accurate method of diagnosing food allergy, and really at that point we've got a opportunity for some veterinarians to and the, and the opinion does vary depending on who you talk to. But the options that you have are that you either employ the use of a home prepared elimination diet, and that home prepared elimination diet needs to select a protein source that's chosen for feeding based on the known past exposure of the dog to various foods. Mm -hmm. And so what you're attempting to do is actually select a novel source of protein and it depends on what the dog's eaten prior as to whether that particular meat protein will be suitable. So some of the things that we used to Use. We used to use things like lamb and venison and duck and rabbit and kangaroo because those proteins were novel. But the problem now is that as the various foodstuffs get used in commercial products, and we now understand a lot more about cost reactivity. So, for example, you know, five years ago we were feeding venison and goat for elimination diets. We're now somewhat dubious that those are appropriate because of the potential for cross-reactivity with other ruminant-based proteins. So we've moved away from things like venison and and goat. And then I recall feeding things like duck and turkey for Mm -hmm. 
elimination diet trials five to ten years ago, and now we perceive that probably for a portion of our allergic patients that are chicken allergic, that there is cross-reactivity within the avian proteins, including things like, you know, hen's eggs. So in humans, there's a syndrome called bird egg syndrome where you simply can't consume chicken or turkey or duck or any poultry or or indeed the eggs of those um, birds either. So, yes, I know. (laughs) And then there's, I guess, we generally add a carbohydrate source and the most often suitable carbohydrates include things like, you know, historically potatoes, sweet potatoes, barley, squash, peas, um, sometimes tapioca, sometimes pumpkin. So the, the, the thing is, is that it depends on, on where you live, who you read, and, and, and what, and what, and what sources of pet foods you have in your regional area. And that's going to be different in Asia compared to the US, compared to Western Australia, compared to New Zealand, compared to, you know, the UK, because dog foods do tend to vary a little and trends vary in terms of what people want to feed. But what we generally do is talk to people about how the most important thing to, to, to consider is their ability to comply. So there's no point doing, you know, a horse meat and sweet pumpkin, a sweet potato or pumpkin elimination diet if, you know, the owner's not in a position to access the product, uh, prepare the product, cook the product, and um, and feed the product consistently. And in those circumstances, sometimes a hydrolysate diet that's a commercial product um, is a better choice mm. because if it's convenient and it's nutritionally balanced and it's something you only can purchase and if they're busy, then they're more likely to comply with that. And yeah. the commercial hydrolysate diets at the moment that are available, what we're trying to do or what we try and do is select a product that has a, has a novel source of protein. So when veterinarians go and look at what is in the various commercial products, they have to consider the nature of the hydrolysate. So some of these diets have chicken in them and or chicken liver in them. And if you've got poultry liver in a hydrolysate diet, you need to be aware that there are a percentage of dogs and cats that will react to the hydrolysis, even though the, the dietary constituent is broken down into into smaller constituent amino acids, there are still some dogs and cats that react to the parent protein. So yeah. without being specific about brands, there are some brands of commercial hydrolysis foods that utilize poultry liver where the hydrolysis is quite large. And if you look at the published evidence, there are a percentage of chicken-allergic dogs and chicken-allergic cats that even when they're fed the hydrolysate diet, they still continue to scratch. Mm. And so that becomes problematic for the veterinarian because you think you've got your dog on an elimination diet and what you've really got is a dog that's so sensitized to chicken that it continues to scratch because the hydrolysate's not small enough. So for veterinarians looking for the best commercial diet on the market, the considerations that are important are, is the protein source novel? So, for example, there's a diet that uses feather protein that is at this stage not not been associated with any cross-reactivity with chicken parvalbumin or chicken meat. So okay. it seems as if the feather protein um, antigen is quite distinct. So that's the first consideration. Do I have a diet that's got a novel source of protein um, for my patient where the dog has not been exposed to that protein before? Is the carbohydrate novel? So we're looking for diets that contain things like denatured um, cornstarch. And then we've also got to recognize that the size of the hydrolysis 
in the commercial diet is really important. So the hydrolysis needs to be very small so mm-hmm. that the amino acid uh, protein constituents are tiny so that we're looking for that um, lack of cross-linking uh, of the allergens on the mast cell for the degranulation. So you're looking to reduce your immunologic reactions. And then the last consideration is, that, is it palatable? Because one of the problems with hydrolysis, and if you look in the human field, hydrolysis are quite bitter, and they're infants that um, have to uh, eat hydrolyzed formulas, for instance, often there's quite a struggle with palatability. Mm-hmm. And in our world, my experience is that the dogs usually eat it because dogs are not that discerning, and most dogs eat, you know, within reason, most dogs eat everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the cat, we have really yeah. big challenges with the cat. Yeah. So it's yeah. so it's quite challenging because you can have there are one or two brands that are very commercial of commercial hydrolysis diet that are very good and that satisfy all those criteria I've just discussed, and then you get to the end of the day and the cat won't eat it. Well, yeah. then then the elimination diets have no value if the cat won't eat. You know. I just had a couple of questions that have come up. So obviously you said that it's very important to choose a novel protein and you mentioned when you were looking at a commercial diet that choosing a, a novel carbohydrate is important. But with a home-cooked diet, is it really important to be giving um, a novel carbohydrate as well as the novel protein or is it more likely the protein that they're going to be allergic to? Yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a good question. If you have a look at, once again, the, the evidence in the area, it would suggest that the um, proteins are more important than the carbohydrates. However, if you look at the ev- published evidence on incidence of food allergy, even though um, wheat is not a, a very common cause of allergens in dogs, and although it's very fashionable to think that the yeah. dog is, you know, gluten allergic and the whole notion of the grain-free diet has been, again, very popular yeah. acclaim for, for, for very little scientific reason, to be honest. But, um, you know, wheat and soy allergies are reported. So essentially what we're looking at is... A, we need a novel protein and a novel carbohydrate, and we need to feed that for a period of eight weeks. And what we recognise in dogs is that 50% of dogs will be basically better at the end of week five. If you look at the okay. recent meta-analysis that's been published by Oliver and Mueller, who's published a very nice series of um, collective responses on um, looking at the literature published in the area, um, you will we determine that. Um, half the dogs are better by the end of week five, and then you get increasing percentages of improvement um, with the with the, the longer the time spent okay. on the elimination diet. So that's quite powerful for, uh, in my opinion, to tell owners. I usually yeah. say to owners, look, this is this is this is a long haul, but you know, half the dogs we have a food allergy will be will be in a position where we're able to rechallenge at the end of that period um, by the end of week five. There will be some dogs then that need to go to the end of week eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at, once again, the published evidence, only about 5% of dogs with confirmed food allergy need to be fed an elimination diet for longer than eight weeks. And the stats for cats are a little bit different. The cats take a bit longer. The cats, if I remember the paper correctly, um, it's at the end of week six for cats. Okay. Um, and it's about 10% of cats that require longer. longer. So the take-home okay. message for veterinarians is novel protein, Novel carbohydrate, either a hydrolysate or a home-prepared diet for an eight-week period. Yeah. Okay. And um, obviously, with a home-prepared diet, if we're literally just feeding a protein source and a carbohydrate source, is there any concern about missing all of those micronutrients that 
might be lacking if they're not having anything else in their diet. Do you do you are you worried about that over an eight week period, or is it sort of in the long term that you would um, worry? In a um, in an adult dog, in a grown dog, no, um, because I eat for that period of time. Certainly, we would not be an advocate of feeding a because the diet's not balanced no. um, for. Um, some of the commercial hydrolysis diets are balanced for adults. Mm-hmm. So, we, but if a, there's only one hydrolysis brand of hydrolysis diet that's balanced for growth, uh, and that's one of the diets that's got that quite large chicken hydrolysis in it. With uh, it's also got a soy hydrolysis in it as well. So it's not really a perfect diet because of that particular concern. Mm. So the, the guts of it is, is that if I've got an, a grown dog, I'm happy to feed that grown dog an, an unbalanced diet for an eight-week period. Now, there'll be people who disagree with that statement. The nutritionists don't like that statement at all, and they get quite um, concerned about the potential for uh, imbalance. Uh, the dermatologist generally, in my opinion at least, believes that over that time period that that very polarised specific diet is um, not going to cause uh, any nutritional harm. Certainly if you've got a large or giant breed, rapidly growing um, pubescent dog or a puppy, then that diet would have to be balanced. And there are nutritional services um, at Massey, I believe, and also in the US that will provide you with that um, service. So veterinarians can kind of log in and um, provide the nutritional consultancy with the information about the breed of dog, the weight of dog, the proteins and carbohydrates they want to use and they can they will actually balance that diet for you. Okay. With a like a topper, like a vitamin mineral sort of yeah, additive. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And I wanted to talk about actually managing the ears. But just lastly, when we're looking at the elimination diet, obviously almost the most critical part, if you have had a dog that's responded and improved during those five to eight weeks or a cat with six to eight weeks, the re-challenge component, obviously that's when you're going to sort of get your gold nuggets of information. Uh, How do you generally structure that? So what we normally do is once a dog or a cat's shown complete remission of clinical signs, then really you've got to challenge the animal with the previously eaten foods. And the way I do it is that I um, feed the original diet. So you need to you need to include the um, the commercial or the or the home prepared diet that was being fed before you started, and any table foods or pet treats or dietary supplements or flavoured, chewable, heartworm preventative medications any, or flea medications, anything that the pet was being fed um, prior to the onset of the elimination diet because these could be the primary source of the allergen as well as the commercial diet. And then you'll see if there's going to be a recurrence of clinical signs, um, you can see that at any time from you know 15 minutes from feeding the food up to about 14 days. But if you oh. look at the literature published about when it's most likely to see that reaction. I mean, about 75% of the dogs, and this is my clinical experience as well, will actually have that clinical reaction within one to three days. Okay. So you're not really practically, you know, waiting to day 13 for, 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 for most dogs to react. But what I say to people is, if you've had that original diet for two weeks and your dog hasn't changed and everything's basically normal, then the dog's not food allergic. Okay. If the dog reacts at any point in that re-challenge after you've fed the diet, then you've got to re-initiate the elimination diet. Like you've got to stop and go back on to the um, elimination diet. You do have to be quite careful because my experience is, is that um, the parameters can be quite marked and you can get a dog that is severely 
um, pruritic quite quickly and they'll excoriate themselves and they'll be very unhappy mm-hmm. and distressed. So it's very important to communicate to clients that you must go back onto the elimination diet and then what you do is once that pruritus, that itching is settled, um, then you then feed the um, you know individual proteins and individual carbohydrates. Yes, okay. And I usually do that based on the diet. Does that make sense? Like if yeah. you get a diet full of chicken, then I'll just challenge as red chicken, chicken first. Yeah, okay. So yeah. that's so that's actually quite a clever way to do it because you're, you're not asking them to do you know, a hundred different food challenges. Yeah. They're just doing the diet. And if they're not reacting, then you have your answer and it's just so much simpler. Right. But if they do, and then the you go back to all, that. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. all you're trying to answer, you're, and this is what I say to clients, all trying to answer, we just want to know, is he food allergic or she? Is yeah. he food allergic or not? Yeah. You know, yes yeah. or no, black or white. And we can work out what later, but let's just answer the question, yeah. are we food allergic? Because yeah. the problem is, particularly in, Western Australia with a strong um, seasonality to atopy, what often happens is people start a diet trial at the end of summer. The dog gets better because it's actually atopic going into, you know, June, July, August, mm. and everyone convinces themselves the diet change worked, but when yeah. they challenge, nothing happens. Yeah. So the, the reality is the dog's not food allergic, it's just a seasonal atopic. Yeah. So it's very yeah. important to um, clarify, and even if owners are really insistent, like I say to owners, that's fine. You stay on your commercial hydrolysis diet if you're really happy with it, but let's remember we haven't confirmed the diagnosis. Yeah. But I'm happy for you not to challenge because a lot of owners are very reluctant because they do not want their pets scratching and itching again, yeah. and I understand that, and yeah. I have empathy for that. But they're all we note on the record is to say, this dog got a lot better with the diet, but it's not confirmed with a challenge. We may need to do that at a later stage. Because yeah. some people like to continue to feed the balanced commercial hydrologists if, if that's the case. And I, I mean, you have to understand that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If they're finding relief for the first time in several years, then yeah. they would be reluctant yeah. to disrupt that. That's so clear the way you've described it all. Um, thank you so much. I know that we, um, we've we got about five minutes left together. So I just wanted sure. to briefly touch on if there is a confirmed food allergy and we've done the re-challenge and we have the um, food allergy under control, do you find that generally the otitis improves to a point where you don't have to sort of manage that at all or is there still a separate sort of maintenance plan in place for the health of the skin and the ears um, separate to... Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. A, that's a really good question, Sarah. I think, to be honest with you, if food's playing a key role then generally the intervention with ears is a lot less. What mm. I think happens more here in Western Australia is that food's playing a role, an important role, but a lot of the dogs are atopic as well, and the food's almost like a trigger, yeah. just another trigger factor, which is yep. the way we're starting to think about, you know, atopy now is that, you know, is, it, is, it, is, is there a cross-reactivity or a polynosis? Is there actually a circumstance where the foods are triggering because of shared antigenic epitopes you know, um, allergic clinical signs. So take the food out of the diet, the patient's much more manageable, but you've still got potentially um, an underlying or concurrent problem that you have to manage. And so to answer your question, my key management strategy for dogs with allergic otitis is to use topical um, corticosteroids. Now, I have some brands I use, but I'll tell you the active ingredients that I think are effective. Um, We use a lot of 0.1% the medicine mm-hmm. um, in an alcohol-based um, solution. You can use um, 
the hydrocortisone acepinate, which is also in a denatured alcohol solution. And the deal is, is that topical glucocorticoids in in alcohol are drying, and that's a very useful sort of um, quality for a product to work effectively inside the external ear canal. And the, the local steroids work very, very well. So, for example, we might be in a situation where in Western Australia in spring, it's been happening all week here in the clinic, we've been completely jammed this week with yeah. dogs head shaking and scratching yep. without infection, they're just itchy. Yep. So those dogs will go on to daily topical uh, glucocorticoid therapy right, okay. for maybe a 7 to 10 day period and then we would use longer term, you know, one to two consecutive days a week okay. of topical glucocorticoids, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, that that's um that makes perfect sense. Um, and I I do recall in practice seeing that a lot as well. Is that the owner was really frustrated because they couldn't see any discharge or any sign of infection, oh. but the dog was just really really itchy and the ear just looked a bit pink. <laughs> so that would be a yeah, good way and, to and, overcome and, that. And you, and you have to kind of exactly, and you have to overcome the the, the tendency to want to say, oh, I can't see anything. You know, and the owner's yeah. thinking, well, my dog's frantically head shaking and scratching. Yeah. So that 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 statement that is really important, Sarah, that the, the disproportionate nature of the change that you see on physical and clinical exam compared to the symptoms. You yeah. know, the, the dog's really prudic, and you look in the ear and it's maybe very mildly erythemic with a little bit of hyperplastic change, and there's very little to see here, you know, but but you have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge as clinicians, is that paritis is the lesion. Does that yeah. make sense? That's yeah, the, it does. Yeah. Yeah, so we're just treating the paritis. So... Really, it's, it's anything that you can use that's clinically feasible to put into an external ear canal that's not occlusive, that's not greasy, that's not going to create a contact-type topical you know, reaction. So I really, in that space, uh, really like the lotion-based um, uh, or solution-based, rather, um, topical Well, Mandy, I, I will let you go because I know you've got to go into a consult in a few minutes. <laughs> I'm yes, really I'm appreciative. Really cool. I've got a today. And yeah. right. I've really enjoyed talking to everyone. Yeah. Maybe I love talking about ears and I've been very yeah. keen given our new venture to um, maybe um, have a chat about because there's lots of There's other lots of other things. Disease, Absolutely. Yeah, we well, well let's, let's call this part one. <laughs> part one of yeah, years. Part one. <laughs> um, just quickly before you go, are you able to share where um, people can find you and more information about the clinic? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. So you will um, – we have a new website um, mm-hmm. which I can um, – give you the uh, contact address and then um, people can find me. I'm readily accessible um, uh, by email. So if people are interested in making contact with me about questions in relation particularly to ear disease Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then there's also quite a lot of information on our, just actually at my computer at the moment, quite a lot of information on our new website. The only reason I'm checking it is because we changed the a website address. So I can easily let me just have a look here. So we are um, oh no, that's our US people. Um, and we also have a Facebook site. Oh, great. Uh, and we also have um, yeah, we have, have Instagram. So what I might do, what I might do, Sarah, is if I can get that to you. Yeah, I can pop it in the show notes. Include that. Yep. Yeah, you can probably pop that in a little bit later. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. 
Great. Yeah, so well, best ways to contact me are website, uh, on the website, through the website, yep. uh, or through Facebook, or um, at my personal email address, which I'm more than happy for you to distribute to anybody who wants it. Thank you very much. We will we'll pop them them in the show notes once you send them to me. And thank Lovely. you again. Have a great day and weekend. And we'll definitely have you back again shortly to talk more about ears. Good luck with the new um, clinic. It yeah, sounds really exciting. Yeah. 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 So congratulations again. And um, we'll speak to you again soon. Okay, lovely. Thanks so much, Sarah. Bye-bye now. This is the Pure Animal Podcast. And I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Mandy Burrows, please jump onto iTunes and leave us a rating and review.